So good to see you. And I got to tell you straight up that um, for me personally, one of the best things about preaching tonight is that I don't have to wear a mask. All right. And, and I say that, yeah, okay, well, clap for that. Um, I, I say that not because I don't intend or don't like or appreciate to follow the rules. You know, I'm very much committed to the mask. Okay, but I find there's something that goes on in my psyche that when I have on a mask, especially with, when it's not my bandana, uh, it makes me feel trapped. And so I kind of feel like, oh, good, for the next half hour anyway, I don't have to have that on. So I'm not gonna try to, try not to hang too far over the edge here uh, to send my molecules your way, okay? Anyway, but it's wonderful to see you and, um, and it's great to see you. Sunday morning also, if, uh, if you are with us online. So, hey, by way of review, we've been in 1 Corinthians 13. And that chapter starts this way. It says, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Just a lot of noise and as Pastor Trent preached now, maybe about a month ago, three, four weeks ago, whenever it was, that even if I am full of passionate worship in my spirit, and I want to kind of bring that, hopefully God's way, if I don't have love to accompany that commitment, I've become nothing but noise, according to verse one of 1 Corinthians 13. Next verse. What is the next verse, Nate? If I have all knowledge, is that how it goes? I'm having a little bit of a mind blank here. How does it go, Ned? Yeah. So if I have, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. So even if I have that kind of knowledge, right? Even if I have that kind of knowledge and I'm just super smart and I'm dedicated to leveraging that knowledge somehow to make sure that I show myself to be wise, maybe even in God's estimation, if I don't bring love with that, the verse says I am nothing. And then verse three, if I deliver, if I give all my possessions to feed the poor and if I deliver my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing, okay? So that even if I am a servant, if I'm a doer, if I love to bring that kind of servanthood and to be known as a person who is hard at work in the community, hard at work in the church, but if I don't have love, even if I'm doing that unto martyrdom, if I don't have love, it's not going to profit me anything. It then says love is patient and love is kind and that we have those two things coupled, okay? And Trent and Ryan would have talked about that. And then last week, that love does not envy, okay? Love does not envy. And then finally, what we're looking at tonight, love does not boast. So see those two things as a couplet 
in the text that love does not envy, love does not boast. That is that love protects us, or at least it should protect us from wanting something that rightfully belongs to someone else. Love does not envy. And conversely, love protects us, or at least it should protect us from boasting about something we possess and someone else doesn't. So do you see how those two things complement one another as a couplet in, in the text, okay? And so just some thoughts, just some thoughts, I think, to start out on this idea that love does not boast. Love is okay. In fact, it's comfortable, and it, I think it would even prefer anonymity. All right? That it prefers anonymity. It doesn't require accolades. It doesn't require applause. You know, it, it doesn't need to be satisfied with its result, that it has a target and then it needs recognition to come back or to have achieved something in particular. No, it just loves for the sake of love. And it's okay, in a sense, to be unknown or unacknowledged by its recipient, okay? So love can be that way. Love... I think, is as, it, as it's not boasting, love is, 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 I think, a product of the heart. It's a product of, of, of the action, but it's also a product of the heart. I, I brought something with me, and I've just got to share this tonight. Um, you know, it's, it's a little bit... Uh, Bizarre, maybe for me. I, check this out, though. I want you to see this. Look at this thing. And focus in on this, brother, if you can. Because this was my favorite toy. And not just my favorite toy. This was my best toy, like 50 years, almost 50 years ago. And do you know what this is? This is a G.I. Joe Jeep. This is seriously cool. And, and I just want to show you, like I'll hold it up a little bit here. Like it's got this white star on the front. It says G.I. Joe on the hood. It says 7,000, whatever that means. I don't know. Um, I can't imagine that that means 7,000 horsepower. Uh, so anyway, but this Jeep, and I remember in my neighborhood uh, on Woodthrush Drive in Lanham, Maryland, when I spent just four years there from kindergarten through third grade, and this was my favorite toy. It was my best toy, and I felt like it just made me like the best guy in the neighborhood. There were a lot of guys in my, a lot of boys in my neighborhood. 19 boys and one girl on our block. How would you like to have been that girl? Okay, so we had this Jeep and this Jeep was just cool. But check this out, what I also brought along. So I'm gonna put this down here. Even more cool, G.I. Joe, seriously. Like do everything you can to pan in on that, okay? G.I. Joe, and these guys are ready for action, okay? But then I also brought along a special guest tonight. So we're gonna put this guy we to put this guy in here if he can fit. Wow, he still fits. Okay, so here, here's our special guest, Barbie. Okay, so Barbie comes along. 
and you have G.I. Joe and you have Barbie, right? And so it's gonna be like, you know, Barbie, I am, I'm the toughest guy there is, and we're gonna go get some bad guys, and do you wanna come? And Barbie's like, no, I want to go to Brewster's and get some ice cream. And G.I. Joe is like, hey, you know what? I got this really cool like AR-15 assault rifle, it's so awesome. No, I really wanna go and get some black raspberry, okay? So, all right, so we're gonna go and we're gonna get the bad guys and then we'll go for ice cream. Okay, but you're gonna have to sit in the back, okay? Because there's only two seats for two. And me and my buddy, we gotta go get the bad guys. Okay, okay, I can do that. All right, so we're gonna go ahead and we're gonna put them like that. We're gonna put Barbie in the back and she's just kind of reclining there and she's gonna trust those guys to drive well. Okay, why am I sharing that? <laughs> I thought as a kid, that if I had the best toy, that made me the best guy. And isn't that true for us, possibly, right through the duration of our lives, that if we have something, if we possess it, and we're proud of it, that we think somehow that this thing that we possess, whether it's a toy, whether it's an appearance, whether it's knowledge, whether it's some sort of authority that we can exert in the lives of others, whether it's wealth, whether it's reputation, whether it's an online presence, you know, whether it's I am passionate about this cause or I am not passionate about this cause or that I possess the ability to kind of walk the tightrope between either side of whatever cause whatever it is about us that we kind of deem important and the most important thing about us that we would be tempted to boast about, that that can be something that exists in the heart, even if it doesn't get voiced or practiced by the attitude or the behavior, but that it's there. I knew, even as a kid, even as a kid, I knew that if I, that, that I, wasn't supposed to, that I wasn't supposed to brag, that I needed to be nice and I needed to play nice with my friends on the block, with the boys, and so we would go around and we'd push the Jeep around. But I still had something in my heart wherein I'm taking the different boys on the block and maybe it's this way for me all of my life, at times in my life, when I'm taking this thing and I'm trying to work it in my head and I'm trying to just, say, you know, this either makes me better than you or I don't feel like this makes me better enough or better than you. And so it brings insecurity into my life or it brings pride into my life. But that what I'm trying to do is take that and use that to make myself feel better than I think you are. Meanwhile, love protects, at least it should protect my regard for others. And if you're the kind of person who likes to write something down, write that down. Love, protect. This 1 Corinthians 13 kind of love is meant to protect our regard for others. It's meant to keep me from feeling insecure because I think that the people around me in whatever category are better than me. And it's, make, and it's meant to keep me from being condescending 
toward people because in whatever category, I feel like I'm better than them. Love does not boast. It doesn't boast in heart and it doesn't boast in behavior. Love does not boast. So maybe a good question, and I can see if I can formulate it for us, is this. Do I have the kind of love for the people in my spheres, whomever they may be? Do I have the kind of love for the people in my spheres, for my colleagues here at work, my family members, to people that I just pass as I'm walking down the concourse of Capital City Mall? the people in my spheres that I just see as I'm living my life, do I have the kind of love for them that makes me want to regard them well in my heart so that even if they don't know me, even if we have no interaction, I'm doing the right thing in my regard for them as they come into view and as we step into relationship together whatever the case may be, whatever degree of intimacy I may have with whomever, whatever relationship, do I regard them well? And in order to do that, I need to have a heart that is humble. But how do I get that humble heart? I'm so excited tonight to come and to just share a little bit of this idea. You know, where does the humility, where does a humble heart come from? How do, I, how do I find this humility and a permanent humility or at least a growing humility in my heart toward others? And I think that the answer is this, that humility can be found and is to be found in relation to the greatness of God, but also to the love of God. Do you remember the story? We've talked about this before. In Genesis chapter 16, do you remember Genesis 16 and the story of Hagar and that Sarai had been uh, told that she was going to have uh, a child or that Abram, Abram had been told that he was gonna have a child. And, uh, and so Sarai tells, uh, she kind of gives Hagar, her, her maidservant, uh, over to Abram um, and they are together and Hagar uh, bears a child and then everything becomes like this train wreck because there's d this disdain that gets traded back and forth and it breaks Hagar's heart and so she runs away and she's on the road to a place called Shur, S-H-U-R and it says that the angel of the Lord who I believe to be Jesus Christ, a pre-incarnate, visitation of Jesus himself, that the angel of the Lord appears to her and converses with her, that he finds her. And what would she have felt like? What did she feel like that afternoon? As she's sweaty because she's been running, she's dirty because of the dust of that region, she's scared, maybe she's been crying and she's got stuff coming down her face and he finds her and he cares about her. And amidst his care for her, he says to her, I want you to return and submit to your master. And she ends up saying to him, you are the God who sees. 
And then she says, and I have seen the one who looks after me. Do you see the love that he had to go and find her? Do you see the love that he had to send her back? And do you see how it was that she surely would have returned and submitted and that there would have been a change in her heart as she stepped back into a community that had hurt her so deeply? Or two chapters later in Genesis 18, you look at the character of Abraham. He's now been renamed, gone from Abram to Abraham. And he's had another visit from the Lord who brings two angels with him. And the Lord says, I am going to make sure that Sarah, your wife, has a child about a year from now. And Sarah laughs. And there's this interchange. And, you know, she says, I didn't laugh. And Jesus, again, I believe, says, yes, you did laugh. Yeah, you did. But that's okay. My promise to you is still going to come true. And then he takes Abraham with him. And they step aside and they venture over to the, to the cliff that's overlooking this valley. And you have these towns of Sodom and Gomorrah and others and, and the Lord has said, I, I want to see and check out if what I have heard about these places is true, that they are as evil as I think that they are. And so Abraham, knowing that his nephew Lot with others still in the town begins to intercede. And he says, far be it from you to punish the innocent along with the guilty. You're not that kind of God. Far be that from you, will not the judge of all the earth do right? And so he says, if there are 50 righteous people, will you spare the towns? And the Lord says, yeah, I will. And then the next thing out of Abraham's mouth is, I am nothing but dust and ashes. See that as a humble heart? I care about these people. And so I'm gonna keep talking to you. Will you spare them if there's 45, if there's 40, if there's however many, right down to 10? And you get a sense that the only reason Abraham stopped at 10 was because he thought to himself, surely there have got to be at least 10 righteous people down or he would have kept praying and relying on the Lord, right? Do you see the kind of humility that he had been loved, sought, even by Jesus, and that it's carrying over into a love for people who many of us, I think, would say didn't deserve that kind of love. They didn't deserve to be spared. But Abraham is interceding. Or what about Jacob? You, know, you remember Jacob? You know, this is chapter 32 now. And he has had, the, uh, you know, much of his life is behind him. As a young man, he was um, some pretty powerful things. He, he, he was a coward. Uh, he was a thief. He was a liar. And at one point, his mom says, run for your life because you've stolen something that didn't, it was not initially given to you. And so your life is in danger. Go to your uncle Laban. And he crosses the Jordan River. 
and he's on his way to what would today be Damascus. He lives his life for many years. He ends up with wives. He ends up with herds of sheep and so forth, a vast community. But then he gets called back and he's scared. And so as he's coming back into land, he's scared of his brother Esau. He hears that there's 400 people, 400 warriors coming with Esau out to stand in their way. And he doesn't know what that, what that holds for him and all the women and the children in his camps. But there on the banks of the Jabbok slash Jordan rivers, and he goes back to the Lord in prayer and he says, who am I? Who am I that you would be so good, that you would be so kind to me? You know, I crossed this river. I had nothing but a piece of wood, a staff in my hand. That's what I brought when I came across this river, this opposite direction. And now look, you have done so much for me. And who am I? I know I don't deserve it. The humility has set in. Love does not boast. Love is humble. What about Job? You remember a good man, and he's taking the time to sacrifice for his children. It says in chapter one, verse five, just in case they had sinned against the Lord in their hearts. He was that good of a man. He goes through all of these hardships, and we know about those things, brings him through the book. At one point in the book, he says, though God slay me, yet I will hope in him. So you already begin to see the humility in him. But a man who understandably could have said to the Lord at the end of that book, hey, you killed my children. I had 10 of them, you took them all that instead he comes back in chapter 42 and he says, I understand now that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. You know, I used to think about these things and try to work these things out in my mind. But you know what? These things are too wonderful for me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and I repent in dust and ashes. That the end of that book for an incredibly righteous man, a God who's, uh, man who God said was the most righteous man in the world says, I despise myself, I repent in dust and ashes. Now he's got this humility. God says, pray for your friends so that they'll make it. And he does and they do. Then what about David? You know, I know that I'm going on here. I'm not so much trying to um, make a point here as I am trying to just whet the appetite. God create in me more of a humble heart that would not boast so that it's yielding the kind of first Corinthians 13 love that you want in me and from me. That's what I'm wanting to do. David, you know, in 2 Samuel 7, and the Lord has just blessed him. I have removed and dealt with your enemies on every side. I have established you. Look at all the good I have done for you. 
And David comes back and says, I am not worthy. I'm not worthy. And David is still going to go and commit sin after sin after sin. He's going to commit adultery. He's going to commit murder. And in Psalm 51, he's going to come back even then and say, I know that a humble and contrite heart, you know, this kind of a spirit, you will not cast out. Create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. So you see the generation of humility. Or what about Isaiah? In Isaiah chapter six, when you know, he has this vision of the throne room of God, and the first thing that occurs to him is, woe to me. Because I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips and my eyes have seen something that has just knocked me over and I hardly know how to deal with it. God agrees, sends his angel to touch the lips of Isaiah with with the coal to burn in a sense, to burn the sin away. Now your lips aren't unclean. But then what happens next? God says, you know, I'm looking for someone to go and to lovingly tell my people the truth about their state and their predicament. Who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here I am, send me. Do you see the generation of the humility? Last one. I guess, if it has to be. In Luke chapter seven, when there's this sinful woman, she has a reputation in town, but she's feeling the love of Jesus so much that she is self-driven into this home, I think full of Pharisees. It would say there in verse 49 that there were many reclining at the table and she stands behind his feet. She, she wets his uh, feet because he's reclining there at the table and he's reclining lengthwise so that his feet are, are furthest out from him and, and from the table. And so she stands back where his feet are. She's crying so much that she's able to saturate his feet enough to wash them with her hair. What in the world? would compel a woman like that to step into that kind of gathering and dynamic, except the love that she would have felt having been forgiven from her sin. You know, it says in 1 John 4, 19, we love because he first loved us. She knew that, and I have to believe that she was a different woman when she left that house that day. She went back into that town And she would have carried a love, a newfound love with the very people who had abused her. Just have to believe that because the love of Christ is that strong. It creates a humility in the heart. Love is humble. Okay, here I'm standing up here. I haven't even had the Bible in my hand. Forgive me. It is here. I hope I haven't stepped on it while I've been preaching. Hey, I've got a text for you. I want you to turn to, what does, the, what does this idea of love does not boast mean 
for the church today. Um, if you have your Bible, you can turn to it. This is going to be 2 Timothy 3, verses 1 to 5. And I'm just going to read through this. And we're going to see what it says here. This is 2 Timothy 3, and it's verses 1 to 5a. And it says this, but understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. A lot of conversations I'm having right now, people of all generations, but especially older generations, asking this question, Nate, do you think that we're living in the end times? Like, has it finally rolled around? I understand that in a sense, we're living in the end times for the last 2000 years, I get that. But do you think that he's, his return is like around the corner, okay? So I hear that. And this is one of the things that the Bible says is going to happen in those last days. Understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty for people will be lovers of self. Have you seen that? <laughs> I wish you had your masks off so that I could see you laugh. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, or in another version, it's gonna say boastful. We know that love does not boast. Arrogant abusive, disobedient to their parents. That's such a fascinating phrase to have included there. You know, because suddenly it's not just talking about adults, is it? We can't just skim through that and think it's adults only. It's talking about children there. Disobedient to their parents. Ungrateful. Unholy. Heartless unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good. I find that to be one of the most um, chilling phrases in the text, not loving good. That, that there has ceased to be an affection for righteousness. You remember the, uh, the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied. That evidently, the, the, the time will come when that'll be either hard to find or will be non-existent. Not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure. Have you seen that lately? rather than lovers of God. So as that gets written here from, from Paul to Timothy, it's an either or. It's not about, yes, you can love pleasure and love God. It's that the time will come when people will be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And then verse five is so powerful, I think. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying it's power. That lets me know all of a sudden that Paul is talking about the church, or at least at the local level, that there's this appearance of godliness, that there's this effort to, 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 to come across as a believing community somehow. 
but that it denies the power. You know who that's talking about, right? That's talking about the Holy Spirit there. But denying its power, that there's no effort on the part of God to get behind this movement, this church at the local level, to be able to say, yes, I am in this and I will fuel this. I will bring this. I will shape this. There's none of that there. This is the effort purely of men and women who say, I want to have an appearance of godliness for one reason or another. And so here's the lesson that that lets me know, that it teaches me, is that the church in the last days, which might be these days, needs to be careful. That's all. That the church in the last days, which might be these days, needs to be so careful. Do you see how this text just gets back to this idea of love does not boast? Okay, now one more, one more text. Turn back into the Old Testament to Jeremiah 9, and I just want us to see in Jeremiah 9, and this is going to be verses 23 and 24. Just as we look, as we pray, Father, to work this kind of humility into my heart because if love does not boast, then love is humble. It acts humble. It has a regard for other people that is marked by humility. And I want that in my life. I want that in my community, I want that in my church, I want that to be not the appearance of godliness, but actual godliness. And I also want that to be true about myself. And so in in Jeremiah 9, verses 23 to 24, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this. What? So I'm about to be given permission to boast? I'm about to be given permission to boast? And in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians, and I know also in 2 Corinthians, it's gonna say, let him or her who boasts, boast in the Lord. But listen to this. Let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. Well, there's our first of five values, that we want to know God for who he is. That he understands and knows me. Are you telling me that I can boast about that? Well, okay, I can say that I know the Lord, but what is it that I know about him? The text answers that question, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love. Father, if you haven't brought your steadfast love to me, there is no way my love, my cheap love, can resist boasting, even in my hidden heart, about myself. I have to have, I have to have, you come with that kind of steadfast love toward me so that I can, sign up and say, I'm right there with guys like 
Abraham and Jacob and David and Isaiah and Job and this sinful woman from whatever town in the Galilee who was just compelled by Jesus Christ, that I'm right there with these people because I have known what it means to be in relation, not just to your greatness, but to your love. That I am the God who practices steadfast love, justice on my terms, that I practice it, I execute justice and righteousness the way that I want to, and it's going to accomplish the work that I want it to every time. No one can thwart me. No one can mess with my plan when I have made up my mind. For in these things I delight. Do you know what God delights in? Do I know? And Father, you know, make me delight in what you find delightful. All right. His love for us. It says in Mark chapter 12, verse 30, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Then it goes on and it says, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. As we get to know God, it's not just that we're permitted to boast about that knowledge. It's that as we get to know him, we come to love him more. The better you get to know him, the more you come to love him. And the more you come to love him, the more you come to love your neighbor. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Why don't we pray? Let's pray. Father, we want that kind of love. We don't want to boast. We don't want to envy. We want to be patient. We want to be kind. We want to practice that kind of love here in our church. We want to be these sorts of people so that when we go out, from the church, that no matter where we are, no matter whom we're interacting with, that we bring this kind of regard and we understand that your love helps protect our regard for others, but we need your love. And so Father, bring your love, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so now we're going to go ahead and we're going to... um, We're going to participate in communion, okay? And you should have received that or picked that up at the tables. If you didn't, I'm still seeing that there are trays in the back so that we can each go and we can have our own little uh, cup. And I know that there's gluten-free option as well. So if you haven't gotten that, go ahead and pick that up now and that'd be great. We're gonna run this like we have been doing it at the men's retreat now for at least the last five or six years. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read the text from 1 Corinthians 11. I'm going to give thanks halfway through the reading of the text. When I'm done reading the text, I'm going to sit down next to my wife over there, my wife, Kim, and I'm gonna give us about two, three minutes to go ahead and to self-examine, reflect, do our personal, private, soul business with the Lord as we remember him. 
by partaking of the elements, okay? So this is what the elements mean. This is what we need to be reflecting on as we remember Jesus well. It says this in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. Now, it's already been broken for you, but I am gonna pray, so pray with me again if you would. We want to remember you for who you are. We want to remember accurately what you've done. We want to say thank you, not just for a piece of bread, a cracker in our lap. I want to say thank you for your body that was given for us. And Father, we want to say thank you, not just for juice that's in our lap, but Father, for your blood, the blood of your son, Jesus Christ. It was shed for us on the cross. We want to remember him and that he did that and that he did that for you in your holiness to satisfy you and that he did that for us so that he could bring us with him back to you so that he could restore, so that he could redeem. And we are forever grateful. Thank you in Jesus' name, amen. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So I know that Jim is gonna play the organ now for about two to three minutes, and then George is going to come back and lead us in the final song. Take this time now. <laughs>